0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States, episode 4.9, The Legacy of 1765. With the merchants throughout Great Britain now loudly complaining about the Stamp Act and the effect that it was having on trade, not to mention the real concern forming over the risk of a civil war breaking out with her American colonies, in February 1766, Parliament blinked. They voted, somewhat begrudgingly, to repeal the Stamp Act. Really, Parliament had little choice by this time. The colonists had made enforcement all but impossible, unless it was being coerced at the end of a musket. The British, for all their fist-pounding over the Stamp Act, were not interested in taking things in that direction, at least not yet. When we look at how history is taught in the United States today, the Stamp Act stands as one of those critical inflection points. For many people looking back and remembering their American history classes from high school, they recall the Stamp Act, the Boston Tea Party, and then Lexington and Concord. They might remember a handful of other things, like that the French and Indian War was important, or maybe about the Boston Massacre. But really, The Stamp Act is the thing that they know that set off the entire independence movement. The Stamp Act is not the first uprising we have seen in the colonies. It is not the first uprising we have seen where the colonists were asking questions about their fundamental rights as Englishmen. Look at pretty much all of Season 2 and the beginning of Season 3. We have talked about these topics before. So the question is, why was the Stamp Act so critical? Certainly, the Stamp Act does mark a major inflection point in our story. Everything that follows it is going to be different from everything that came before it. The colonists' relationship with the British has been forever altered over the course of the past year. Not that the American Revolution was unavoidable at this point. We are still nine years away from Lexington and Concord and there is a lot of time for a lot of things to potentially happen. However, as we are going to discuss today, the events of 1765 changed what it meant to be a colonist in North America. The British, for their part, seem unable to grasp just how big of a problem they had in 1766. This is plainly clear in their passage of the New Declaratory Act, which clues us in but the British leadership really did not fully understand the nature of the issues in which they were now facing. Today, I want to spend our episode examining exactly what all of this means. Why was the response to the Stamp Act so important in explaining the events of the coming decade? The repeal of the Stamp Act came with a price for the colonists. Parliament was not about to completely acquiesce to the demands of treasonous rabble, now causing headaches from the other side of the Atlantic. After all, who did these backwoods provincials think that they were? The solution was twofold. Everybody recognized that short of sending over troops, the Stamp Act was all but unenforceable. Nobody was about to stick out their neck to collect a revenue stamp with economic depression growing worse and the merchants getting increasingly anxious. The Stamp Act was all but doomed. However, should Parliament just outright repeal the Act? They risked sending a message to the colonists that their complaints and protests were valid. The repeal of the Stamp Act was made out of pragmatic considerations. If the Act is causing this much trouble and had become unenforceable, What was the point in trying to keep it around? Nobody actually was advocating for civil war. So in order to bridge that gap between the inability to enforce the Stamp Act and the risk of acquiescing to colonial claims of their natural rights, Parliament passed the Declaratory Act. The Declaratory Act was simple enough. There were no new duties or taxes that came with it. Rather, it was meant to be a direct response to the colonists over everything that had gone down throughout 1765. The Act was meant for people like Patrick Henry in Virginia. It was meant for the mobs that had taken to the streets that summer and for the Congress that met in the fall. It was meant to remind everybody that it was Parliament calling the shots. They were the ones who were in charge. The Declaratory Act itself was a mere two paragraphs, which openly called out the acts of the Colonial Assemblies towards the Stamp Act, reminding everybody in the process that such actions were contrary to the law. In the main takeaway from the Act, Parliament writes that, That the said colonies and plantations in America have been, are, and of right ought to be subordinate unto and dependent upon the imperial crown and Parliament of Great Britain. And that the king's majesty, by and with the advice of the consent of the Lords spiritual and temporal, and commons of Great Britain, in parliament assembled, had, hath, and of right ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and the people of America, subjects of the crown of Great Britain, in all cases whatsoever. In passing the Declaratory Act, Parliament, wanting to make sure that they were being crystal clear, went ahead and put in that final line, the, in all cases whatsoever part, into italics to emphasize that they really meant it. The Act went further in the second section and stated that any resolution or laws passed that flew contrary to Parliament were hereby invalid. With this line, All of those resolutions that had been passed against the Stamp Act from the previous year were ruled to be invalid documents. The accompanying declaratory act meant that the Stamp Act, though it had been repealed, was going to amount to nothing more than a minor victory for the colonists. Sure, the hated act was gone, which was great. However, Parliament had taken all of their arguments about their rights as British subjects and completely discounted them. For many in Parliament, specifically those in the Grenville faction, arguing against the repeal of the Stamp Act, they believed that even with the Declaratory Act, a line had been crossed. This group believed that the real aim of the Americans was nothing short of literal independence from Great Britain. While you had those in Britain fretting that the colonies were now marching towards independence, back in America the mood was jubilant the colonists had won a huge victory and were eager for an opportunity to celebrate. Celebrations, generally, involved a lot of people getting drunk. In Boston, the wealthy citizens paid off the debt of those stuck-in-debtors' prisons, securing their release. Well, John Hancock bought the entire city a round of drinks on him. Parties were thrown, toasts were made, feasts were had colonial legislatures, wanting to make clear their gratitude, wrote kind letters to the king, thanking him for repealing the much-hated tax. As the celebrations began to wind down, however, and everybody started to sober back up, people began to seriously question exactly what victory they had just won. Even those who had been friendly to the colonists had done so largely to protect themselves. The British merchants really did not care about the American colonists' assertion of their rights. What they cared about was not having to declare bankruptcy because some colonists were throwing a temper tantrum over the Stamp Act. It was not lost on the colonists that even those who had supported repealing the Stamp Act still supported the Declaratory Act. Even after the passage of the Declaratory Act, the debate remained within the colonies as to the extent of that law. There were those eternal optimists who took that last line, the one that said Parliament could bind the colonists in all cases whatsoever, and believed that it did not apply to taxation. After all, to text the colonists who were not properly represented in Parliament, well, that was unconstitutional, and surely the British could not mean to violate their rights. Of course, others saw the writing on the wall, and understood that no such distinction had been made. The colonists would indeed celebrate a hard-earned victory. However, quickly more and more people realized that their victory did not mark the end of the greater conflict. If the Stamp Act marks something of a delineation in colonial history, I want to move through and examine why that is. After all, 1765 was not the first time that we have seen questions of this nature pop up. If you have been listening to the podcast, then you know that the entirety of the colonial era has been colonists constantly asserting their rights as English subjects. This becomes even more prevalent following the Glorious Revolution, when many were left questioning their role in the greater empire. 1765 likewise is not the first time that we have seen large-scale uprisings against British officials. Virginia, Maryland, New York, and Massachusetts had all experienced major uprisings against British officials in the past. All four of those colonies had experienced that upheaval in a short span of years, from 1675 until the end of the century. If you ask men like Edmund Andrews or William Berkeley, they would quickly inform you that the colonists have few misgivings about attacking royal agents. From pretty much the moment that the first colonists disembarked in Jamestown, the question of property rights was at the forefront of their concerns. For the intellectuals, they turned towards John Locke's theory of property, which tied property directly to the concept of liberty. Locke stressed that a person's very life and natural rights are their property. While a person could absolutely consent to give up those rights, which people did often, they were the individual's rights to give up. In other words, they could not be deprived of this property without their personal consent. Per Locke, the difference between a slave and a free person was rooted in an individual's right to give consent when separating themselves from their natural rights. Slaves lacked the ability to give consent. If we extend this one step further, we get to the core of the colonial complaint. If a free person could only give up their natural rights, their right to protection and property, through their own consent, then it was impossible for a group like Parliament to tax them. Parliament issuing a tax was an example of Parliament taking the property of the colonists without their express consent. They argued that they were in no way meaningfully represented in Parliament, and that as such the body could not take their property through means of taxation. Property ownership and the rights surrounding property were no small thing to the colonists either. Property rights were very closely related to an individual colonist's political rights as well. Virtually everywhere, voting was tied directly into land ownership. As a result of the massive amount of land in colonial America, a strong, relatively democratic system appeared early on. Furthermore, colonial assemblies were all local bodies. What this means is that between the large voter base and the local nature of the assemblies, the colonists were historically well represented. This made the entire deal all the more suspicious when a distant parliament came in and attempted to interfere with the only thing that the colonists had known for the better part of the last century and a half. It is likewise critical to understand that the colonists were sincere in their beliefs that they were full British subjects, with all the rights due to them as a result. Although pragmatism dictates that there is truth to the fact that economic considerations were at the top of the colonists' concerns, That does not discount their deeply rooted beliefs that they were full-fledged British subjects. In their minds, they had a shared history with their British brethren across the Atlantic that indelibly linked them to Great Britain itself. The circumstances of their own immigration aside, had the colonists not actively participated in the Glorious Revolution? Through the first decades of the 18th century, a popular historical narrative had developed that placed the Glorious Revolution as that critical moment in shaping the empire. Prior to the Glorious Revolution, the former Stuart kings had usurped too much power from Parliament. The Glorious Revolution disposed of the Stuarts and ushered in William of Orange. Critically, the Glorious Revolution had restored that power to Parliament that had been steadily eroding while under the Stuarts. The colonists had been a part of that. They had actively assisted the mother country in purging James II's agents. This takes the form of uprisings in Boston against Edmund Andros, Leisler's rebellion in New York, and the end of Lord Baltimore's proprietary control over Maryland. For the colonists, this marked a moment of shared history with Britain, where they had restored something that they had lost. They had restored the balance of power in the empire and helped steer the entire system away from the increasing despotism of the Stuarts. The problem, however, is that this marks a point of divergence. The British, looking at their own history, did not view the Glorious Revolution as returning to anything. Rather, the Glorious Revolution marked the initial starting point for everything that had come since. If the Glorious Revolution marked a return to those traditional rights for the colonists, for the British citizen at home, it marked a complete break with what had come before it. This split in understanding their own histories between the British and the colonists would carry on into the French and Indian War. Recall the animosity that the colonists had for men like Braddock and Loudon, Both men came into the colonies barking out orders. Then, as is still the case now, the colonists viewed the heavy-handed tactics of these two men as infringing on their rights. Colonial assemblies had no interest nor intention to simply waive their perceived sovereignty in order to appease Braddock or especially Loudon. This had made fighting in North America extraordinarily hard as the Colonial Assemblies made everything that much more difficult. They were not simply going to bow to the whims of anybody. After all, in their view, they didn't have to. They were British citizens with all the rights inherent to that station, and they were not about to waive those rights in order to appease men like Braddock or Loudon. It had been William Pitt, that managed to save the day by paying out those huge subsidies. Rather than treating the Americans as subjects, he was, in the words of historian Fred Anderson, treating them as if they were tiny Prussians. The colonists did not take these subsidies as being bribes to just shut up and play along. No, these subsidies were paid to a patriotic people who were helping to defend and expand the British Empire. Was it not the colonists who were out there fighting and dying? Did the absence of these young men not reduce the labor capacity of their colonies? The American colonists saw themselves as doing their duty to the empire and, accordingly, being compensated for the labors and sacrifices that they were making. The problem with this is that after the war, when Grinville decided to actually treat the colonists like the subjects that they ostensibly were, the colonists cried foul. During the French and Indian War, they had been treated like allies. Now, however, they saw their rights under Grimville being attacked once again, just as they had been a decade before, prior to Pitt's subsidies. The difference in 1755 was that there was a war going on, and the colonies were facing very real dangers. Well, resistance to a point was fine, everybody ultimately recognized that the colonial assemblies would have to eventually knuckle under in order to stave off destruction at the hands of the French. In 1765, however, the colonies were mostly at peace, other than a few pockets of resistance remaining from Pontiac's rebellion. Moreover, the objection to the British incursion on colonial rights was no longer contained specifically to the assemblies. New radical elements had appeared and had taken the fight into the streets. These fights were often led by the merchants and the lawyers, and were indeed often heavily motivated by economic considerations. However, that does not change the fact that the resistance suddenly took on a new and far more violent meaning there had been no mobs resisting Loudoun's policies. Less than a decade later, though, stamp collectors were being burned in effigy throughout all of the colonies. This expanded resistance to British policy was a new, and for both colonial assemblies and the leadership back in Britain, a concerning and very much unwanted development. The colonial assemblies struggled, initially at least, to control this unexpected burst of radicalism, and for much of 1765, they seemed to be going along with the flow of events rather than driving those events. With the exception of Virginia, where Patrick Henry had really steered the ship, the other colonies issued their official responses in the shadow of that summer's violence. Ultimately, the radicalism of the Stamp Act would lead to changes in the colonial assemblies and leadership. Following the Stamp Act, much of that old guard that had so long been in control began to see their grip on power loosen. Throughout the colonies, there were widespread changes to the power bases within the colonial governments, as colonists were wanting to see more action. What emerged right after the passage of the Act during the summer of 1765 was an uneasiness, though there was a general lack of action. The colonies had known about the very real risk of the act for about a year by this point. However, passage brought along a sense of nervous energy, rather than any outright denunciations. This is, of course, again, except for in Virginia, where Patrick Henry did seize on the moment. Here, what we see is a kind of pragmatism throughout the colonies. In many cases, rivalries were not born directly from the Stamp Act. However, those with existing rivalries were quick to exploit the situation to their own benefit. In Massachusetts, this gave men like James Otis Sr. and Jr. a chance to go after Thomas Hutchinson. Well before the Stamp Act was a thing, the Otis's hated Hutchinson, following Otis Sr. feeling as though he had been snubbed for a job that went to Hutchinson. From that point forward, the Otises were not going to skip out on an opportunity to take a shot at Hutchinson, and vice versa. For his part, it isn't even as though Hutchinson supported the Stamp Act, though he certainly was going to enforce parliamentary prerogative. What this meant on the ground in Massachusetts was the rise of factionalism as parties formed behind Hutchinson and the Otises. Massachusetts is only a single example of this throughout the colonies where factionalism was already ripe. The Stamp Act became a pawn of these groups to further their own political ends. In Virginia, the debate over the Stamp Act, and more specifically, those who supported the position staked out by Patrick Henry, exposed a generational divide in the House of Burgesses. The younger members lined up behind Henry, with the older generation sticking together in opposition to him, and his seemingly more radical followers. All throughout the colonies, the story plays out over and over as the Stamp Act provided fuel to create new factions and support already existing factionalism. While colonial assemblies would blame their slow response on the fact that most of them spent the summer out of session, it is hard to imagine that the widespread adoption of resolves throughout the colonies would have come about if not for that summer of violence. If we can draw inferences from the Sugar Act the year before, we can guess that there would have been a lot of grumbling, as well as some tersely worded letters sent back to London. Of course, this is not what happened. What in fact drove the colonial assemblies to action was the fact that violence gripped the colonies over the course of that summer. The Colonial Assemblies were able to read the room and fully understood that officially responding was not merely a suggestion, it was a requirement. While the Stamp Act fed into existing factionalism in the colonies, that alone though fails to explain the mob violence of the summer of 65. It was, after all, the mob violence that would dictate the flow of events heading from the summer into that fall. Change was coming to the assemblies. However, that change would not manifest until after the events of that summer. This leads us, however, to one of the more elusive questions thus far. Why did the lower classes choose to rise up in the first place? To be sure, the mobs were being led by merchants and lawyers, groups hit disproportionately hard by the Stamp Act. However, for many of those who actually took to the streets and did the heavy lifting of the rioting throughout the summer of 65, there seems to be little reason for them to want to participate. Sailors, laborers, and artisans only felt a minimal impact from the Stamp Act. In the South, it was many of the smaller planters who took to the streets during the unrest. Nothing about these groups suggests that they were feeling terribly oppressed. Groups that were oppressed, like the slaves and the Indians, were likewise not welcome to take place in the uprisings. To some extent, the participation of these groups may come out of the always upward looking nature of people in general. For many of those in the streets burning effigies, they personally hoped that eventually they would rise up in status. For the craftsmen, that might mean eventually becoming a member of the merchant class. In other words, Maybe the taxes don't have a meaningful effect on me today. However, maybe they will tomorrow. These feelings of potential upward mobility were not merely pipe dreams either. The colonists had men that they could hope to emulate. Benjamin Franklin, for example, a man who had his hand in seemingly every single pot, had once been a minor printer, the son of a chandler. Franklin was an example that somebody could rise from a position of a mere artisan to become something more. However, aspirational dreams of upward mobility alone seem unable to fully explain why there was a sudden outburst of popular support against an act that failed to meaningfully affect those who were doing the rioting. The evidence further suggests that in many cases, Those who were actually doing the rioting were not completely sure who they were supposed to be mad at. Effigies of the Earl of Butte were burned throughout the cities, despite the fact that Butte had been disposed of years before. Butte really had nothing at all to do with the Stamp Act. Historian Theodore Draper suggests that the violence seen from these mobs stemmed more from ongoing class struggles than anything else. In Massachusetts, men like Hutchinson and Andrew Oliver were unquestionably the upper class. The working class saw them as being greedy and power-hungry. These men lived in nice houses and dressed in popular European styles, while the lower classes struggled to make ends meet. Governor Bernard even mentions that the attack on the houses of Hutchinson and Oliver represented the poor acting out against the rich. The idea that mobs joined in on the action as a result of class stress seems far more probable than these same classes being all that opposed to the Stamp Act. Again, they were burning a guy in effigy who had literally zero to do with the act, drawing into question just how much they understood the technical reasons for exactly why they were rising up. What the lower classes did know, however, is that they resented the upper classes. Therefore, when the middle class merchants and lawyers came to them and asked if they were interested in lashing out against those oppressive upper classes, they responded with, You had me at hello. If this is the case, and we are dealing with a class struggle, it makes the Stamp Act itself somewhat irrelevant to the equation. Rather than being the cause of the anger, the Stamp Act simply acted as the catalyst for action at the urging of the middle classes, who indeed did hate the act. Draper remarks that this created a new and volatile mix in the colonies and presented a gravely serious risk for the British. Sure, maybe the lower classes did not care about the Stamp Act or any of the coming future acts that are going to lead to outbreaks of violence. Maybe the anger towards the policies itself was rooted mainly in the middle classes. However, the lower classes absolutely had their own reasons to be angry. People were hungry and tired, and colonial leadership, men like Thomas Hutchinson, proved to be nice proxies for their frustrations. The Stamp Act therefore managed to galvanize the colonists in a way not previously seen. And critically, it linked them in a meaningful way throughout the classes the lower classes had proved during the summer of 65 that they were happy to provide the muscle against increasingly despised british policy returning to the original question for today therefore we have reached a place now where we can fully look at why the stamp act proves to be such a critical inflection point in american history part of the key to understanding the importance of what had just happened is the very term american History. The Stamp Act was not something contained to any single region of the American colonies. So much of this podcast to date has been the story of regions. Of course, this is not the first uprising that we have seen. The Pequot War, Bacon's Rebellion, King Philip's War, the overthrow of Edmund Andros and the collapse of the Dominion of New England, Weissler's Rebellion, and the overthrow of Lord Baltimore and Maryland. All of these events, and more, represent some kind of action being taken by the colonies, be it an uprising or some greater war where they're fighting for the empire. But the thing that they all have in common is that they all happen within their own specific regions. All those attempts to take Lewisburg, those expeditions were not led by provincials from North Carolina. New Yorkers did not march down and storm the Castillo de San Marcos and St. Augustine. All of these events were regional in nature, if not literally contained, to a single colony and not extending past those borders. The Stamp Act, however, was different. The response was not from New England, the Chesapeake, or the Middle Colonies. It was from all of the colonies. The uprisings and responses throughout the colonies all took on a similar tone. Merchants and lawyers would lead the mobs in burning effigies, tearing down houses, and generally causing mayhem. We likewise see all but a handful of colonies issuing some kind of resolves to address the illegal nature of the act. These resolves are amazingly consistent from north to south. This is to say nothing of the fact that nine of the 13 colonies sent delegates to a congress of all the colonies to formally respond as a group. Even in those colonies like Georgia, who issued a much more tepid response, you see them take steps to ensure that the tax was not going to be collected. This marks a major difference over anything that we have seen thus far. Rather than being dominated by regionalism, the colonies instead acted in unison with meaningful coordination. In this way, the Stamp Act marked a turning point for everything. This event now forms the basis of a new history that existed apart from Great Britain's. The colonies had done something that marked the creation of a new path for them, a new history that was distinct from that of the mother country. More pragmatically than historically splintering with Britain is the fact that, if there was any one takeaway from the events of the previous year, it is the power of united action. We are going to talk a lot about the other acts that are going to be appearing in the near future. However, it is impossible to deny that the reaction to the Stamp Act had given the colonists an archetype for how they should respond to British attacks on their sovereignty. The colonists had likewise proved that their responses would not be limited to small disgruntled groups, but rather such grievances would extend and be propagated throughout the population, crossing between classes. The American Revolution was not inevitable in 1766, when Parliament gave in and repealed the Stamp Act. The problem, however, as we are going to see in the weeks and months moving forward, is that the British leadership failed to fully grasp just how serious the situation in their American colonies was. Different decisions could have yielded potentially different outcomes, outcomes that did not result in the loss of the majority of their North American holdings. Of course, we know that the British are going to fail to make the necessary adjustments to avoid that eventuality. Realistically, drained 1765 and 66, few people if really anybody at all, were seriously thinking about independence from Britain. However, the last year had, largely unbeknownst to anybody, changed things in a profound and largely irreversible way. The American Revolution was not predetermined in 1766. However, following the lessons of the Stamp Act, it was, at a minimum, far more of a possibility than it had been just a year earlier. Next time, we are going to spend our time talking about a handful of other acts that were getting the attention of the colonists at roughly the same time as the Stamp Act. Although the Stamp Act gets most of the attention, the British were annoying the colonists in a variety of ways during the mid-1760s. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we talk about some of the other acts that the British were imposing on the colonists.